everybody. Welcome back to the Dirt Talk podcast, episode 81. And today I talk to Chad Goodfellow of Goodfellow Brothers. Mm-hmm. It's an awesome company. Pretty big. Very big company. I have nothing but respect for these guys. They've been around a hundred years, which is one hell of a achievement and a testament to the way they conduct themselves. And still led by a good fellow. And still led by a good fellow, Chad's fourth generation. Wild. Um, you'll see on this episode, there's not a hint of arrogance or entitlement with this guy. He is as humble as they get. Uh, and so Goodfellow, Goodfellow Brothers, they're they're in very good hands with him and, and the leadership group they have. Mm-hmm. I visited them in, uh, in in April in California. I was blown away by their operations. I see a lot of operations every time I see really remarkable operations, I'm sure, to give people credit. Uh, and, and Goodfellow Brothers is definitely one that deserves a lot of credit. We don't even work with them. I'm yeah. just a huge admirer of this business and, and what, they, what they've been able to do over the past few years, especially. Chad's cool. Chad's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's all like you can say leading up to it is really good dude. Um, enjoyed talking to him. Look forward to uh, sharing this with everybody else. Yeah. Neil is in Maui. Not a bad place to live. Not a bad place to live. <laughs> I mean, they're corporate headshots. Most of them are in Hawaiian shirts. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's crazy. That, it's that just tells a crazy you a specific company. vibe. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So enjoy this episode, episode 81 with Mr. Chad Goodfellow. There's just no rhyme or reason to how we do this. I have no questions written down. I am just, we're just going to wander around. Perfect. That's, that's how I normally about. talk. So, so that'll be good. I'm, I'm normally wandering. So that's a good thing. Good. I guess Chad, important question number one: Do you do you wear real shoes or do you just wear sandals? Since you're from Hawaii, yeah. Well, you know, more often than not, the sandals are always very close. They're in the car <laughs> at any given time. You got to have the sandals ready. You know, you never know where you're going to be, what beach is going to pop up. But uh-huh. uh, no, we we wear more often than not. I'm a I'm a boots or a, or a you know shoe guy. So we'll see. I I have one friend that lives on Maui, Kimo Clark. And he's said he's met you before, uh, and he always looks like he's ready to go surfing. Kimo's the guy that we all are trying to to become later in life. <laughs> I, that I, I aspire to be Kimo. Uh, you know, not only does his company have, I think, like twenty two times the amount of Instagram followers that we have, but uh-huh. uh, but he's a great he's a great guy. He likes to have a lot of fun. You know, we've definitely uh, had some had some good times together. I, you guys did a did a run together not too long ago, didn't you? Yeah, we ran in Texas in February, and then we have a race next month in Utah together. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. I haven't joined the NutFits program. Maybe I need to, but uh, yeah, I got to get on that NutFit program. Let me tell you, if you want a good workout, <laughs> go over there Wednesday morning and get a NutFit in because it is, man. Yeah, you'll be you'll be wiped out the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that just watching it, you know, just watching his, <laughs> his uh, feeds. I'm like, holy smoke, this yeah. guy's a, a maniac. It's great. I could not recommend NutsFit more. Um, <clears throat> so you, you're with Goodfellow. And as we were just explaining, Goodfellow, or talking about before we start recording, Goodfellow is, is, has been around for a while. Yeah. So the company was founded by my great-grandfather and his brothers in 1921, um, actually in Wenatchee, Washington, where I'm right now. Um, they were in World War One, and after the war, they all met in, in Paris at a cafe, and they were trying to determine what they were going to do next. And, you know, they just said, you know, we just, they're extremely patriotic, and they said, we just fought for our country. We want to go home and help rebuild our country. And so they all went back to the University of Washington my grandfather got an engineering degree. His brothers got an accounting and business degrees. And, uh, and then that's kind of where they started the organization in 1921. So, yeah, this is our 100-year anniversary this in 2021. Uh, that's, a, that's a big deal. I mean, that's, there are not very many U.S. companies that have been around 100 years. 
it's, you know, I mean, you like to think that it's a, uh, like a straight line of success, but yeah. over those hundred years, it's, uh, you know, there's ebbs and, and flows just with the construction market. And, you know, we had a lot of tough times and, you know, pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps, but it, uh, it definitely is an, an honor for me. You know, it's kind of like when you're sitting on third base, like, don't think you got there by hitting a triple. You know, yeah, that's yeah, kind of yeah. how I feel. You know, I'm, I'm on third base right now, but, uh, but amongst our, our family and, and all of the great people that we have working with us, you know, that's the reason why we're here today. That's why I, I, I'm uncomfortable to take a whole lot of credit for where we are as a business because it's like I was teed up so so good for all this to happen it's it i was kind of just right place right time like sure I've, I've nudged it here or there but uh like was not was not me in its entirety that's for damn sure <laughs> no it's i mean i just think about my career you know i kind of came up you know one of the things that were set in before i was even born my father when he grew up he had to work in the field as a laborer you know through college and through high school and I did the same thing and um, and you start to build these relationships and friendships with, you know, our folks in the field who, you know, may of which actually still work with us today. And uh, and that's really where you learn, or at least for me, I learned the love of this business and what we do and the people that that actually work in this industry are just so exceptional. And uh, and I give you a lot of credit, Aaron, for really helping make that more known, you know, and getting the word out because I think, you know, one thing that our industry probably could do a lot better is share all the, the great things that we do, you know, and, uh, and so it's a, it's a great thing. It's an honor to be here with you, man. I, I appreciate that. And likewise, but I, I, you know, I still haven't got my invite to Maui waiting on that. Uh, but I, yeah. I hope it'll arrive here one of these days. Okay. This is your official invite. You're officially, <laughs> invita- you're officially invited. We'd love, love to have you out there. That's really all, all, all I wanted. Why, why I wanted you on the podcast. I just want to go to Maui man. <laughs> and, and have it as a write-off. I don't want yeah. a vacation. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many people visit in like February and January. That's kind of the, the key yeah. time. Not a lot of people come in the summer, but, uh, uh, but come wintertime, yeah, we get a fair amount of visitors, which which we love. Noted. Um, uh, growing up around a business that had been on its way for that long, how was that when you were a little kid? What do you remember in, in, during your childhood? You know, I mean, the business and our family have always been kind of interconnected. So, yeah. I mean, I remember, you know, my grandfather and my father talking about business at Christmas, talking about business, you know, at dinner, you know, so... The business is always a big part of our family life. My my grandmother, she's 93, and um, and she's here in Wenatchee, so I get to spend a fair amount of time with her over the summers when we're back here. Cool. And she's still, you know, interested in the business and wants mm-hmm. to know what's going on and what's happening. And so, you know, you have that interconnectedness that is is something that's pretty special. I mean, growing up, I think one of the the great social experiments is, is riding the bus to school. I had that great joy of, of a 30 minute bus ride every day to go to school. And I, I remember a lot of times my dad would be the person who dropped me off at the bus stop and we have some jobs kind of close to the area. And so we'd go before anybody started work and we'd be driving the job site and he'd be kind of showing me, okay, here's where the sewer line's going in. And this is where we're rocking the road. And, and it was kind of like, you're a detective, you know, seeing what happened the last day, seeing, mm-hmm. you know, if there's, if something stopped, you know, maybe there's an issue. And, um, and I was, you know, selfishly, I was hoping that something would happen where we'd miss the bus and then I yeah. get a ride all the way to school. But, uh, but, you know, I just remember those times, you know, and just the being fascinated with not just the equipment that we do, but the actual, you know, how much effort it takes to be able to create, you know, a finished road or a finished subdivision or whatever it may be. Was, was, uh, going to work in construction always a given for you? Did you ever question, um, you know, this is cool. Growing up around it. Maybe it's not for me or was it always yep, like, yep, this is, I want bulldozers. Yeah. For me, you know, I always, you know, what in our, in our family, you know, every summer you had to have a job, right? So you had to do something and it, it was never determined that I had to work in the company. I could go anywhere, but it seemed like partially because being a teenager, you know, I probably didn't get all my applications in. I ended up working in the business during the summers. And through that time, 
you know, for me, I, you know, people would always ask like, are you going to go into the business? You know, you're going to be the guy. And I said, Oh, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm not sure about that. And uh, it really was when I was in college, you know, after, after about three years and, you know, you just see what a family company can do for its people compared mm-hmm. to a like independently managed or, you know, independently run company. You know, if we have a, you know, a board meeting, it's me, my dad, and my uncle. And we sit down and we go, hey, what's the right thing to do? And we're going to yeah. do it. You know, we don't have to worry about shareholders because we're the shareholders. And and that's something that's really special. And, you know, for us to be able to take care of our people, our people take care of our customers and our customers take care of us. And so, you know, being able to have that family atmosphere, I feel like it, it helps us be able to take care of our people a little bit better, a little bit differently. And, um, and so, you know, it was part of the the big reason why I decided to to do it to keep the family legacy going. How does that? So we we talk to a lot of people out in the field these days, and a lot of them say, "And oh, I saw some of your guys' operations in California a few months ago." A lot of them say, "You know that that family atmosphere is really important to them." How does that play out? Like I, your guys' company is pretty big now, and <clears throat> you know you guys can't you know you you can't get to every job site, and, and you're not there you know, creating like you, you only have your hands on so much of the business. You can't really mold every bit of the culture. Why, why do you think, I guess, how does the family culture, how does it start from you and how does it impact like a laborer or an operator? And why is it so important to those guys? I mean, I feel like in my job now, you know, it's so critical to be pushing our values, you know, what makes us successful and, you know, taking care of our people through our core leadership team. And so while we are, you know, while we've grown a lot, to me, you know, the only thing that has really allowed us to stay successful over the last hundred years is being consistent with our values. And so our mission is to be the contractor of choice to employees and our people, to our customers and the communities in which we live and work. Mm -hmm. And so being able to, you know, have a mission statement that isn't just a, you know, a bunch of words that people put up on the wall, but something that, you know, I live, something that our core management team lives, and then all of our, you know, what we call our division presidents and, and regional managers, you know, that's what we're trying to push down. And, um, and there's a lot of times where, you know, where we see people that are going through something that's difficult, and that gets raised up, and we're able to do something special for them, whether it's a laborer or or, you know, one of our, you know, foremen or a project manager, you know, things happen. And, um, and for us to be able to, to do the right thing, you know, always, you know, is, is a critical piece of, of being able to get that value system down to, to the folks that, that I don't actually get to see all that often. Yeah, you're preaching the choir there. <clears throat> the, the, just the interesting thing is a lot of companies don't have a defined value system. They, every company has a value system because I don't think you can have a company without a value system or a company that sustains itself for a while without a value system. Um, but mo- yeah, most of them don't have it written down or explained all that well. And most of them don't have any kind of uh, mission. When did you guys come up with that mission? How long have you had that for? So that was probably about 20 years ago is when we, when we did it. And, yeah. and at the time it was kind of, we were a much smaller company and, uh, and we're thinking, well, you know, most of our key people, they've been with our organization for a long time. You know, they understand what we're about. They understand what we're trying to, you know, get across, you know, what we've seen through as we've grown, you know, we have to bring on, you know, we bring on new talent and, and new folks and it takes time to get, them able to kind of understand, like, is this something that we just say, or is this something that we really live? And, uh, and so that's where having it written down and also really making sure that we're reinforcing it consistently in not just our words, but our actions is, is critically important. It's pretty neat. Uh, going back to you in school, uh, or I guess, you know, you, you said, they would make you work over summers. What would you do over summers? What kind of work would you do? So I was a laborer, you know, that was kind of, you know, that was what we do. So yeah. one, one year it was, I was on a sewer line. So we're on like a main sewer line crew. And uh, so we're basically laying eight inch sewer pipe and setting, setting manholes. 
that was a lot of fun. Um, and then the second year, the, the project that I worked on was over in Lahaina, and it was um, it was more complete. So we were doing a lot of the the last finish work. So we were you know rocking the roads. We were I was working in um, a catch basin, you know, stripping all the forms in the catch basin, which is not a lot of fun in in Lahaina in the summertime. You don't get that nice uh, the yeah. nice breeze going through. I did but, that in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, so I, I can relate there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, but, but those, you know, that, those were kind of two of my, you know, kind of key things when I was, before I could join the, uh, the union, cause I had to be 18 when I could join the union. Mm. Um, I worked as a parts runner. So we'd go around and work in our base yard, keep the base yard clean. And then when somebody would have a, you know, a really important, something's missing or something needs, they call me and I'd run to the, the local supplier, grab it and get it out to the, the job site, which is a lot of fun too, because I got to work with a lot of our different crews, you know, primarily in Maui, but, uh, but yeah, that was kind of also a lot of fun. It, it, it is cool. And one of the things I appreciate about construction, there's a lot of family businesses, but there's not a whole lot of special treatment. And it's like everybody, you know, you go to work as a laborer and you go to work uh, here, you're, <laughs> You're not treated like anybody else, or at least that's most of the time what I've seen. And that's really where you learn the most is when you're, you know, starting every, every, I get asked all the time, where should I start? Start as a laborer, because that is the best place to start learning from in this world, no matter where you want to go. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, for me, I would work really hard so that people wouldn't know who yeah. I was, you know, yeah. because yeah. I mean, the last thing you want when you're trying to build relationships is have these walls that are in front of you, you know, totally. and, and it's like, Oh, it's the, you know, son of the boss, you know, yeah. you know, you know, be careful, you know? And, and to me, you know, being part of the team is, is where you build those relationships. And so it was like, you know, my foreman would know, but I would try to kind of keep it, keep it <laughs> as quiet as we could, you know, through the, through the rest of the ranks, you know, just uh -huh. because, you know, that's how you learn and, and you want to be treated. I mean, for me, I want to be treated like anybody else. It's, it's so important because that's how you learn. Totally agree. Where out of, out of school, did you go to work for the company or did you go elsewhere before you? Yeah. So after I graduated, I went to, um, I went right into the business at the time it was, so I graduated in 2002 and our company at the time, we had gotten pretty heavily involved with, Trimble. So it was kind of the very beginning mm. of, of the, the GPS, you know, technology coming into the business. So, you know, we'd have the, the rovers and the rover was just kind of a wand. And then our grade setters would have a backpack and the yeah. backpack actually housed the, uh, all the hardware and the computer and everything. And, and they'd use the rovers and we're like, man, this is amazing. And so we were, we actually started it in our, in our Seattle operations. They were the first ones to to start working with it. And they said, this is a game changer. And so we ended up hiring a fellow, um, Eric Pickle from Trimble. And we brought, we were bringing it across our entire organization. And so I was, you know, kind of paired with him initially to help, help us adopt it in all the different regions that, that we worked in. So I built models and, you know, worked with hardware issues and, and did a lot of, um, you know, a lot of it was just trying to Get everybody on board with the technology and the benefits of it and uh, so it was, it was also great because i got to then work in a lot of different regions where primarily growing up i had only really worked in maui it gave mm. me the opportunity to kind of meet with everybody else and then like in the early 2000s at one point we were actually the largest owner of trimble gear in the country you know because we're an early adopter yeah. but uh but now we're not even close, but, uh, but it, it was a great technology and definitely was something that, that we take a lot of pride in. Uh, what was the value? Why adopt it early like that? You know, for us at the time, you know, when you're out setting stakes and you've got, you know, maybe one surveyor and, and a couple of grade setters on the job, you know, you hit one stake and our operators are basically running blind. You know, they've got to try to think about where everything was, whereas, you know, we saw pretty early on being able to have all that information readily available first as a grade setter. So the grade setter could just come back and he didn't have to run the whole line. He could just go put that individual stake back in the ground um, between that. And then eventually with the, you know, having the guidance in the machines to be able to give our operators a true sense of where they are on the job and what they can do without needing to have 
a surveyor out there hitting stakes, like it was a game changer for us. Well, it sounds like common sense now, but that was the early 2000s. I mean, there's there's still companies today that are making a big deal about getting grade control. They're like, yeah, we have, we just got grade control. You're like, wow, cool. Yeah, you really, you figured it out. Like, so, so everyone already has it. That's, I, that's a, that was like in its infancy. Yeah, no, it was, it was early. And I mean, we were trying to do things probably, we we're stretching the equipment at the time probably beyond what its capability was like in Maui, you know, rather than have base stations set up on every individual job, we set base stations up in kind of three locations on the Island so that they would, you know, kind of cross locate into all of our projects. And, you know, and then occasionally, you know, we'd be tied into the wrong base station and all of a sudden everything's gone crazy. Like what's going on out here? Like, Oh gosh. But, uh, but it was uh, definitely really exciting time. And I think all of our, our folks, you know, particularly our operators and and, uh, folks in the field, they're like, wow, it's, it's so cool to be able to have all this information without having to, you know, make a phone call to get it. You know, it was, it was really, really kind of an exciting time for me in my career. With, uh, Working in Hawaii, that must be super unique. I mean, it is super unique here on an island. How, what are the challenges of working in Hawaii compared to the mainland since you do both? And so you're able to probably compare and contrast pretty easily. Like what are the key differences between Sacramento and Maui? Yeah. Well, one thing in Hawaii, you know, we, we think of Hawaii as, as an individual state, yeah. but every island is is so different. And so mm-hmm. when we're working on Maui, it's really important that we're hiring local. And when we say local, we're hiring from Maui. And if we are working on Kauai, we want to hire our people from Kauai because every island has its own different culture. And so, you know, while everybody rolls up under the Hawaiian culture, it's, um, it's important that you have those connections, the, the connections to the community. And so, you know, I think that's one key difference is that, you know, we, we really try to keep every island busy and working so that we're able to keep our workforce going without mm-hmm. necessarily having to, to bounce people between different islands. I mean, sometimes, you know, that's the necessity, but for the most part, that's one thing that we try to do. I mean, a lot of people go, oh my gosh, do you have to put your equipment on barges and move around? Like, it's it's really no different than putting it on a transport. There's just one more, you know, you got to drop, put it on the barge, you got to pick it up. So, yeah. you know, we've got the hang of that. You know, that's that's not a big issue as far as moving equipment around. But I'd say probably the biggest difference is, you know, you really have to understand the culture of every island that, that you work on because it's it's not the same. Well, as Kimo, he's explained it to me too. People are very proud of being a local and, and having a history in Hawaii. So they'll, I mean, it, I don't know if it's discrimination, but even, you know, if you're not born and raised in Hawaii, people can kind of uh, look down. I don't know if it's looked down upon, but look at you differently. And then, and then he said, even, even beyond that, it's like, how many generations have you been on Hawaii and, and how many family members do you have here? And, and the deeper your roots run, I guess, the more respect you, it's, it's just a, a whole cultural phenomenon that doesn't really happen in the United States, I feel like. Oh, for sure. You know, you've got, you know, when, when my father first came to Hawaii in 74, you know, we, we did a project on Maui and the next couple projects we ended up getting were on the island of Molokai. So him and my mom, they moved to, to Molokai and um, it was like, he'll say it was the best thing that could have ever happened to him and our company by having that work on, on Molokai because it's such a small community. Like Molokai is like a microcosm of, you know, Hawaii in, in general. So, mm. you know, the gal that is, you know, there's one restaurant at the time, you know, so the waitress at the restaurant, her brother is your inspector, you know, or her father <laughs> may be the police chief, you know, so everybody is so interconnected. And while you don't really know anybody else, right? Everybody knows you, right? And so how you act and how you behave, you know, not just at work, but in life, you know, people can come to the, the realization real quick if you're a good person or you're not a good person. And, and I've always felt like, you know, if, if you treat people right and you show the Aloha spirit to others, regardless of if you've been there for 
three months or you've been there for three generations or 10 generations, you know, people will bring you in and, and adopt it, but you've got to respect the culture. You got to respect the people. And, um, and that's how we felt, you know, we were, we're very fortunate to have really been adopted into the Hawaiian culture. And, and, you know, that's where, where I was born. That's where, you know, my, my two sons were born and, um, and that's our home. But, uh, but it is, you've got to, you know, you've got to earn your place there. You know, there's a responsibility that comes with living in Hawaii and you've got to care about the land. You've got to care about the people. And then, you know, then people will, will start to, you know, take you in. Well, and I feel like that, it probably gives you guys a competitive advantage in a place like that too. Cause I couldn't just take build with excavating grading over to Hawaii and start bidding against you. I mean, maybe, maybe I could get you a low bid on, on, a job here or there, but I'm not part of the community. I don't, I don't know if I'm going to make it all that far. We've seen a lot of folks try, you know, to come over yeah. and, and do work and, and it's, you know, very few are successful. You know, I think that, you know, being a part of the community is important. You know, had my dad, had we not lived there, I think it would have been more difficult for us. But since we got involved in the community and, and really started to, you know, kind of show, you know, our values and who we are, you know, we were really very fortunate. And, and I mean, as far as workers go, you know, our, our folks in the field in Hawaii, you will not find more caring, giving, hardworking folks than, than we have in Hawaii. I mean, we've got folks that have been, you know, multi-generational employees that, you know, have just, are just amazing. I mean, and they're just amazing craftspeople. And uh, it's, it's fun to watch, you know, I mean, it's like a watching an artist, you know, like I, you know, I grew up and I'd jump on machines, but, you know, usually somebody would have to come behind me and work an hour to clean up the mess I yeah. made, you know, yeah. and uh, to see what, what folks can do with our equipment and, um, and with the, the resources, it's, it's pretty fun to watch. Well, going to that in the community, you guys were all over the news. It was probably a few years ago now when all that, that volcano, when that, all that volcano, uh, I don't know, monkey business happened and, and there was lava overtaking homes and roads and you guys were in there with dozers ripping, ripping through it to give people access to their communities again, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually we were, we were creating it so they could get a way out. So oh, the a, lava had actually divided a, uh, it actually divided a, a housing subdivision. And so they, you know, people didn't want to leave their homes or trying to protect their homes. And so the, uh, the state, asked us to come in and cut an emergency access road to get around to the backside. So, so we could uh, get people out. Yeah. The photos were crazy. Cause I, I think it was like D nines. It was like D nines, like big dozers sitting there ripping fresh lava or fresh. I don't know. There's probably a more technical term for that because it's rock now, but it, it was, it looked absolutely insane. You know, we love rock. You know, I know this is dirt talk, but like, yeah, you know, like yeah, our, yeah. our core competency has always been rock. Like we, uh -huh. I'm a rock guy, you know, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, working in that type of terrain is incredibly um, difficult and it, it just beats up our machines. But the guys that we have, I mean, particularly on the big Island, that's all they know. I mean, that's, that's what they do day in, day out. And so to be able to, to get out there and do that, you got to use big machines, but, uh, but yeah. you can get it done. Well, I don't think you have anything but rock in Hawaii. Now I think about it. There's some areas. I mean, each island has, you know, you've got, sometimes you'll be working in sand. There's some clay deposits, you know, so just because, you know, like Maui, for example, you'll have probably seven different soil types that we find ourselves working in, depending on what part of the island. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I'd say what we love are the, are the rock jobs. That's, that's kind of what we, what we get excited about, but We'll do it all. We love it all. <laughs> That's how Middle Tennessee is just about all rock. I mean, you'll get a little bit of of differentiation here or there, but there's a drill on every single job out here. It's crazy. I mean, it'll be like a little, you know, eight inch water line. There'll be a drill <laughs> out there. You gotta you gotta go blast for that water line. Uh, it because it's just you're not digging it. There's no way. Um, <laughs> so so that's why you guys, like you've said, you've grown quite a bit. Yeah. How did that come about? Because I know, especially a lot of the California stuff came through acquisition. 
when did that all start to occur? Yeah, so it was about, well, I'm going to say eight years ago was when I became president. And, you know, we, you know, we had just kind of, it's kind of like when you uh, inherit the farm in the middle of a drought, you know, so we're, you know, kind of going through, you know, yeah. all the, all the difficult times after the, the housing bubble burst. And, you know, a lot of our work still to this day, you know, we, we love private work. And so we were doing a lot of work for housing subdivisions and a lot of private customers. And so, you know, we're kind of, you know, we, our company had, had to shrink down to kind of meet the market demands at that time. And we said, okay, well, we had a nice runway ahead of us. You know, we could kind of see the bottom of, of what, where we were at and things were starting to pick up again. And, uh, and so, you know, we wanted to kind of push our key managers to grow the business. And so we set a goal that we wanted to have, you know, we wanted to be doing about $500 million of work, which is about three times what we were doing at the time. And, uh, and we wanted to do it in five years. And so part of that was to help kind of set a bar. So all of the, our regional managers, the folks that run our different areas could kind of look at their markets and look for opportunities within their individual markets to, to try to grow the business. Um, and then fortuitously at about the same time, um, we were approached and, and had the opportunity to acquire top grade construction, which is now our, our California area. And, uh, we weren't really thinking, you know, at the time, you know, we weren't necessarily super excited about going into California. We'd done work there previously and had a pretty, pretty bad experience. But, uh, but when we went down, we're, we're very opportunistic. So we went down and started to meet the team at Top Grade. We're like, gosh, these guys are just like us. I mean, they're, they're awesome people. And, and it really got us excited. Um, you know, Brian Gates, who, who runs the company, his father, Bill, was, was, uh, was there at the time. And, um, and we saw, you know, tremendous talent in Brian and the whole leadership team there and thought, hey, well, let's, let's make a run at it. And, um, and so we were able to get the deal done. And, you know, the results since then, it's just been amazing. We're, we're just so fortunate and so blessed to have them as a part of our team because, you know, they've done just an exceptional job growing their business, but then also, across our other regions, you know, kind of having that bar, um, you know, kind of helped everybody kind of go. And we, I mean, we far exceeded our goal as far as growth goes. And, um, and so it's been a, been a really positive success. I, I think that for us though, the challenge with growth is you can only grow as fast as your foundation of your people are growing. Right. And, you know, it's easy to grow. It's hard to grow profitably. Right. You've got to, You've got to make sure that your people share your values, they share and understand the company, and that's how you can have what we call sustainable growth. And so, you know, where we are right now, you know, it's one of those things we, we're really investing in training our people, we're investing in getting our values down across our organization, because for us to take the next step, you know, we've got to build that bench, we've got to build that team under us to be able to, to take on more. And that's kind of our, our key focus right now. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've figured out the growth thing. So we we've started to get that dialed in. The profitable thing is still eluding us. Everybody's like, "Wow, congr- congratulations! That's that's some amazing growth." I'm like, "Yeah, it'd be a lot cooler if it was profitable." But we're 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 still trying to figure that one out. But the the whole top grade thing. I mean, that was uh, it was like you you guys did a pretty good job on that one. That was a that was a good bet. Yeah. Well, I mean, you bet on people, right? We're in a people business. And, and so when it all came down to it, you know, we, you know, we were like, gosh, this is a great team. And, um, and man, they've not just, I mean, they've exceeded any expectation that we ever had. I mean, it's great. And I think part of our philosophy is, is if you have great people and you can give them the resources to be as productive and effective in their job as they can be, then you're going to see, you know, you're going to see great results. And, and so I think that was one of the things having our resources to be able to help them grow, um, you know, what they've been able to do with it has just been, been amazing. We're, we're so proud of that team. It's yeah. Uh, we'll talk about it a little bit uh, in, in a little bit too, but I just had this conversation with somebody like two hours ago. They said, I've seen, you know, another company go through a lot of growth very fast. They were investing in plant and equipment and so on and so forth. And then it all just caught up with them and it didn't end very well. And I just, I want to make sure we're, we're heading in the right direction as a business. 
And I, I told him, yeah, and and we have grown fast, but our our the big difference between us and in that case was they were investing in in plant and equipment. We're investing and betting on people. I just have people. Seventy five percent of the spending we do is people, is payroll. Not even not even uh, uh, benefits and everything like that. I mean, it's almost a hundred percent of our spending is investing in people. And that's why I'm so confident what we're doing because we're investing in really, really phenomenal human beings. And I know, I know it's going to pan out. I know it's going to pan out. And it's so much more valuable than any equipment or property or, or anything else I could buy. It's, it's the best investment out there, hands down. Absolutely. Yeah. Why do companies buy other companies? Well, I think for us, you know, we had tried to go into the California market previously and it was a big failure. You know, we tried to, to go out and hire folks and we thought, you know, we're going to bring a team in. And the reality is in a, in a specific marketplace, particularly if you're working in a different geographic location, I mean, relationships are built over decades, right? And mm-hmm. so, you know, having a team that has already cultivated good relationships, I mean, you're going to hit the ground running compared to, you know, having to start and try to, you know, kind of make these relationships on your own. I mean, like, obviously, you know, our business is a low bid business for for a lot of work, but where we find, you know, the most successful jobs are where you have trust with your customer and you're able to, you know, work together and that works best for the customer. It also works best for the contractor. And so, you know, for us being able to, you know, acquire, you know, those not just the company, but all the relationships, all the positive relationships that that company had earned over its 20 years in business was a huge opportunity for us where had we tried to go plant the Goodfellow flag in California, there's just no way we have been able to see the results that we were able to see with, with them as a part of it. It is interesting. And I think there's going to be, we've talked about this a little bit. Like I had Anthony Garcia with Rogers group on, and that was a, that was Rogers group's biggest acquisition read contracting earlier this year. I think it's only going to happen more and more as the years go by. And as a lot of these companies, unlike Goodfellow do not have a succession plan in place. And that's just the, the opportunity or there's this huge pipeline company. All their equipment was just sold at auction today. Richie brothers in New Mexico just liquidate the entire fleet. And there's not a whole lot of options if you don't have that next generation ready to take over, but the market demand's still there. So you have to, you you have to do something with it. I think, I think it's only starting from an acquisition standpoint in this industry. I, I agree with you. I think that succession planning is, is tough, you know, and, uh, and like, even, even though I'm a young guy, I'm, you know, 40 years old, but you know, you have to kind of start thinking, you know, well, where is this going to go? You know, where, what am I going to do from a succession planning standpoint? I mean, my son's four years old. I think, uh, you know, that's a, it's going to be a long time before he's ever ready to, to go into the business. And, uh, and so, you know, how are we going to, you know, put ourselves up? Luckily we've got a great executive team to be able to run, but how are we going to be able to continue this on? And it's a, it's a real challenge. And, and I'm kind of in the, in the early phases of my career. So, you know, I, I think that, you know, there's a lot of folks out there that love the business, but it's not an easy business. You know, it's not something that, you know, you just jump into and say, okay, hey, well, we're going to go out and, you know, be really successful in the construction industry. It takes tremendous effort and work. And so, you know, there's, we're struggling, I think, as an industry to find people that, that really want to take on, you know, with so many family businesses out there to take on that next, you know, to, to make that next step. Well, that's the funny thing about your great grandfather and his brothers. Like, you get out of World War One and you decide to be a contractor. Are you kidding me? Like, you you could have done so many other things, and you go you go try to move dirt. That's a that's a hard gig. Oh, absolutely! But it's an uphill battle for them. You know, it was it was very much about their country. You know, and at the time. Yeah. It, it was such a different industry, right? They're building roads where roads have never been built before, you know, through the mm-hmm. Cascade Mountains. You know, they're building, you know, later in our, you know, our company's history, we were able to, to do the excavation for the Grand Coulee Dam, which at the time was the largest construction project in the world, right? And, uh, and so the types of projects that we were doing were, you know, literally, you know, helping people every single day. Once that dam's built, 
you know, the irrigation, you know, to all of the, what we call the breadbasket of, of Washington state, you know, now all these farmers have water to be able to grow crops and folks could drive to Seattle, whereas before, you know, it was a, it was a long horse ride, you know? And so, so those type of projects at the time were so critical for our country to be able to be what it is today. I think in today's world, you know, while the work that we do is just as critically as important as it was back then, I don't know, you know, as an industry, if we're doing a good enough job really showing the world how important infrastructure is and how important our craftspeople are to the success of our society. And um, yeah. and it, that's one of the things that I personally, I feel like that's one of my most important roles in in my job as CEO is to to really help explain to people just how critically important our industry is to the success of of all of us, you know, to our collective success. I think as a society, we've just been so comfortable for so long that like my whole life, I have, have, I just hit the switch on the wall and the lights come on. That always happens unless there's a storm that, that takes it out for six hours. And it's like, Oh God, what do we do? Let's go get the flashlights. (laughs) And when you're a kid, it's awesome. When you're an adult, it really sucks. But that's, you've just, you've just always known that that is the reality. And, and like, Back in the day, like your great, great, uh, your great grandfather, you didn't always have roads. You didn't always have consistent water. You didn't have power. You didn't have a lot of that stuff. And then you started to get it and you're like, hmm, this is very important. But nowadays, all of the value, especially in the United States, we don't make things anymore. We, we move money around and we, we make technology and, and it's on the computer and, and sure it's, it's valuable, but it's not at the end of the day, it's not real. Uh, it's, it's on the computer. It's, it's not actually tangible. Uh, and has the built world become any less important through, through that period of time? Absolutely not. It's more important today than ever before, but I feel like it's, it's our society doesn't value it anymore because we put more focus on these other industries and worlds now than we did previously. And we've always had it, so we just take it for granted. Totally, and you know, and I think that's something that uh, that is a big, big piece of it, right? You turn your your faucet on, and water comes out. You know, you want to yeah. get somewhere, and if there's road construction and you're delayed 15 minutes, you know, we're angry about it. But at the end of the day, when you think about the world, I mean, there's still a tremendous amount of places in this world that don't have consistent water, do not have consistent energy, do not have you know good road networks, and and, you know, we're so fortunate to have all these things at the same time, you know, it's so easy to, you know, to take things for granted. And it's, yeah. it is, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough sell, but, and I think also as an industry, like at least I was raised, you know, you just keep your head down and you keep working, you know, let, let everybody else do their thing. Like, I'm just going to do my job and I'm proud of what I do and I'm just going to do it. And at the same time, I think as an industry, while that method has got us here, it may not get us there, right? Like, I think that as an industry, we need to do a better job of just explaining how important the services that we're providing are. Otherwise, you know, we, it's very easy to be taken for granted. Totally. That's, and that's one of my arguments is like, hey, guys, we're in this predicament because we haven't talked about it. Like, this is, we've kind of engineered this ourselves. And it's, it's a hard pill to swallow, it's 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 cool the humility thing and the hard work thing and just put your head down attitude. I really appreciate it. I respect it. I enjoy it. I don't I'm not one to naturally go talk about what I do. But yet that's that's where the world is at and and we just need to adapt and evolve like you guys getting Trimble for the first time. That was probably total blasphemy to a lot of people, especially at that time in the early 2000s, like absolutely not. Are we doing this computer witchcraft on <laughs> on our job sites. And yet now it's it's just industry standard. You don't do work without it anymore. Have you, taking over a company like Goodfellow, have you ever had anxiety or worries about like, what if I screw this thing up? Oh, yeah, all the time. You know, I think that you've got to, I mean, for me, you know, when I first got the job, you know, one of the most important pieces was, you know, a lot of the folks that, you know, that were working for us at the time, and and still a lot of our key people today. There are folks that my dad hired, 
right? They're people that learn from my dad. You know, my dad has, you know, tremendous respect, you know, in our business. And, and so, you know, how do you try to create something where, you know, you can, I can honor and respect, you know, my dad for all of his contributions at the same time, you know, try to take this team that was my dad's team and make it my team, you know, and the, the first thing that I did was I met with each one of them and just said, Hey, look, like, I know I have this job, but there's no way I'm going to be successful without your help. Right. Like I need your help. And there, you know, I'm not kidding myself to think that I have all the answers, you know, but I know collectively, you know, we do have all the answers, but I really need your trust and support and willingness to say, look, if I'm out, if I'm going in the wrong direction, like, please tell me, you know, please let me know so that we can make sure that, you know, at the end of the day, the goal for all of us is a successful, healthy company. And, um, and I was really fortunate that, you know, that our team really did do that for me early in my career. They really were, you know, partners as we were kind of solving these challenges together and growing at the time and then throwing an acquisition. I mean, so we had all these different things happening, yet the, the team really was so supportive of me and helpful through that process that, you know, that's, that's the reason why I've been able to kind of, I think we've been able to create what we, as a team, what we've been able to create, but, um, but without them, you know, it never would have happened. Right. And so, so I think that that's it. And then when you're in the seat, for, you know, now that I've kind of been in the seat for eight years and, and became CEO, you know, a couple of years ago, like you build that confidence, you know, you build your understanding of the business of your team of what you're trying to create. And so, you know, for me, it's about, you know, I mean, because legacy is such a big piece of, of why I joined the business, you know, then it's about now we're going to try to create a culture that's really best in class, something that's really special so that we can, you know, not just look at the past and say, you know, wow, we, we did a lot of things back then, but also be excited to look to the future of, with the core folks that we have today, what we can accomplish over the next 10, 15, 20 years. What does a best in class culture mean at a construction company? I think it goes back to where if you can have the, your laborers, you know, down from the top to the bottom, everybody is looking out for each other, you know, from a safety standpoint, everybody cares about the company, but each other's well-being and recognize that, you know, we're, you know, everybody's living a life, work is a part of that life, but we have to be mindful of everyone else and their challenges and what they're going through, both at work and at home, to create a, an environment that is truly collaborative and something that's supportive of each other. And I mean, we spend so much of our time working every single day. Like, I want to create an environment that is fun, where people want to come in every day, want to see their coworkers every day, that want to help their coworkers when, you know, challenges come up. And so, to me, it's about, you know, creating a team that, that really cares about each other. I, and, and honestly, I, I would be looking at you a little suspicious if I didn't visit your job sites, because most people say that, not always true, especially in this industry. That's why people don't work. A lot of people don't work here anymore because they haven't been treated very well. But seeing your guys' job sites, it's completely accurate. And it was almost, it was almost a little unbelievable. I was kind of, I was kind of sitting around on these job sites, like, wow, everybody is so, so happy. Everybody really enjoys being here. And it's like everybody we worked with, John, I was with John Hovde for the day, and he'd introduce me. Yeah. So this is so and so. He's been running a blade for us for 35 years. And, and this is so-and-so. He's been here for 27 years. And, and here's so-and-so. He's been here for 40 years. And I'm sitting here I'm like, has everybody just been here their whole lives or something? Like, what, what is going on here? This is insane. Because everybody else is saying, I can't retain people. And yet everybody here has been here for decades. Like, these guys must have something figured out. It was, it was super cool. And I mean that in a very genuine, genuine sense. No, I appreciate it. You know, and it's, it is. It's, I mean, at the end of the day, our craftspeople are the people that make us successful. You know, and that's an important part of, of our company. When we have our meetings and even executive meetings, it's like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, everything that I do, we don't get paid for anything that I do. We don't get paid for, for this podcast. We, you know, like I'm no. a total cost sucker, right? So the, yeah. only, the only people that do anything that allow us to get paid for it are our craftspeople. 
And, and so they deserve the respect and the honor because they're the ones that are doing it every single day. And, and I think that it's important, you know, whether you're working in accounts payable or you're in payroll or you're, you know, an executive in the organization to really have that respect and understanding that they're the, that's, they're the driving force. They're the engine of this machine, you know, and without them, yeah. we're not going to be successful. Totally. I, I think there's always been a, uh, at least a lot of companies, I always see this weird us versus them mentality of field versus office. And it's, it's funny for me because it's like, guys, you, you, you field could not exist with you office people. You office people couldn't exist with you field people. But I think it's, it's important for the office to first acknowledge that the field is what makes the money. They are, they are the billable line items. They are the finished grade and the curb and gutter and the asphalt by ton. Like that's how every single job is built. It's built by labor and materials and they are not on that list. And if they give the field the respect first, I think they'll get the respect of the field in return. But I don't know. It's just this funny ego thing a lot of times where it's kind of like, man, they, they don't know how hard, hard I work in the office. Like, well, if you were to just first acknowledge like, hey, the people out there work really hard and it's their heart. It's my heart. It's it, it's not harder than or this and that, but they're the ones that really pay everything here. I support them. I think it would be a much more productive conversation if everybody had that attitude. Absolutely. I mean, it's our job to give our craftspeople the tools that they can, you know, be most effective in their job, right? So we're their support team is the way I look at it. Ultimately, my job is to be, you know, I'm the leader of the support team of our field operations, you know, and we all need to be supporting them because if we can allow them to be more productive, more successful, then we all benefit from it. You know, they're, they're the golden goose that lays the golden eggs, you know, and, and it just is, and, and we deal with those same struggles too. You know, somebody will come out of college and they've got a degree and they, you know, they, they feel real proud that they worked really hard and they acquired a lot of student debt to get there and they're trying to, you know, show their place and, and earn their spot. Yet, you know, my, my philosophy has always been is if you go with an honest heart and ask for help, you know, anybody is going to listen to you and really give you that help. You know, that's something that we're trying to create. And so, you know, there's no way that an engineer coming out of college is going to have as much experience and knowledge of what we're trying to create than the 20 year foreman in the field. Like nobody expects that from our, you know, our office people, you know, what we're asking is, is to be their support and learn from those, you know, learn from the experience that you have. It's such a beautiful opportunity to be able to be, if you're working with a 20 year foreman, like think of all the opportunities, all the things you can learn from them. And, um, and then, when they see that, when they feel it with an open heart, that an engineer is coming to them, asking for their help, asking for their thoughts, then that creates trust from the field folks to, you know, that engineer. And they're going to say, okay, look, if you need this, I'm going to go out of my way to make sure that it happens. And, but it's got to start with, you know, having that open heart. And I think for me, it it does start in the office. You know, it's that engineer getting out of their desk, walking the job site every day, you know, maybe walking in with the foreman or walking with somebody in the field that they know and trust and, and asking questions and saying, how do we do this? How do we do that? And, and that's where you build that relationship. It, it's, it starts with intent. And also, I think it just takes time. I think young people aren't patient enough with relationships. And sometimes, yeah, you do get that feisty foreman or super that's going to tell you to screw yourself day one. But if you're if you're there every single day working as hard as the next guy and 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 doing everything you're supposed to do, you're going to earn that trust over time and then you're going to earn the right to ask them whatever question and earn the right to learn from them. A lot of these people even if you have the best of intentions and even if you are hungry to learn, they're not all that interested in teaching you until you've earned their respect and trust and some of that it just takes time. Uh, yeah. When I was running a job, uh, we were, we were doing it as a public job in, in Maui. I was the project manager. And, um, and so I was, oh God, I think I was like 27 at the time. And it was one of the larger jobs. The total work was about 50 million bucks. And, and we're doing it over, you know, it's about a 12 month job. And the uh, construction manager, his name was Pat Murakami, since passed away. But the construction management team, like the youngest person on the construction management team was 72 years old. 
And we had 72, 76, and 78, right? And I'm 27 years old, right? And so, you know, the, probably in the first week, I, I went in and, and I talked to Pat and I just said, hey, Pat, like, you know, I've heard a lot of great, he was, before he was in this role, he was actually the head of DOT on Maui, but then retired and then kind of took this job as kind of later in life, just wanting to stay close to the industry. And I just said, hey, Pat, like, I don't have a clue what I'm doing right now. This is a recurring theme in this this podcast, me saying I have yeah. no clue what I'm doing. Yeah. But, you know, I just went to him and said, look, I'm going to need your help. And he, you know, he listened and said, okay, you know what? You, you let me know. And through that project, you know, there were times where there were battles and things. And, and I always knew that we could sit, I could take Pat to the side and we could sit down and work something out that was fair for everybody involved and, like that lesson for me, you know, in, in my career was just such a blessing, you know, to be able to have that time with Pat. I learned so much from him, you know, and uh, and it was just something that I'll, I'll always have with me for my life. But, you know, I don't know, had, had we not had that initial meeting, I don't know if, if it would have gone so well, you know, and, um, and I would have missed a huge opportunity to have learned, you know, so much from, from that man. It was, uh, you know. It's just something that, that I always hold dear. And so being able to humble ourselves, whether you're the 20 year foreman or you're the, you know, the young engineer, being able to humble yourself and say, look, we need each other and, and we want to help each other with, you know, with good intentions. You know, I, I, it goes a long way. Yeah, I completely agree. What, um, there's a lot of misconceptions with the California market, I feel like, um, Everybody, everybody loves to cite that everybody is leaving California and that no one lives there anymore. I've been to California this year. There are still people that live there. So I can confirm that that's not entirely true. And then I, I not only have seen California, but I've seen the development in California and it is absolutely bananas. Yeah. Okay. So if everybody's leaving California, why is there still so much development in California? Well, I know the answer, but I'm going to tee it up for you. <laughs> no, I think, I mean, to me, what I've seen, at least in the Sacramento market, which has been just ridiculous right now. I mean, the Sacramento is, it's just crazy. All of the opportunity that's going on out there. I, I do think that, you know, with COVID and everything, there is a flight from these urban environments where, you know, I just spent a year in my two bedroom apartment with my kids. Like I got to get some more space you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the technology companies are allowing, you know, more work from home. You know, you've got this opportunity. So it's like, yeah, well, I can make the drive from Sacramento if I only have to do it a couple of days a week. And I can have a real home for my family. I can have some space. And I'm, you know, I'm tired of being cooped up in, in that apartment. So, you know, part of, I think this, it's not necessarily people leaving the state, but I do see, you know, kind of a, a change in the way people want to live their lives in California. Um, it's still, I mean, and that marketplace, I mean, it's still the fifth largest economy in the world. I mean, it's still, you know, a huge, huge innovation center. And so, I mean, we're seeing, you know, we're, we're not seeing anything slow down over there. I mean, it's, it's just picking up, but definitely on a residential side, it's just bananas. It's crazy. I, I mean, I've always known it's kind of bananas. It's like, uh, like the magic mountain job you know, a while back. And I, I know there's more work there now, but seeing, you know, tens of millions of yards hogged by 657s is a, a quite the thrill for, you know, literally tens of thousands of house pads. And then, but, so I always knew it was kind of bananas, but going up to Folsom area and all, a lot of that's rock. So it's all blasted. It's not scraper dirt. And so it's three nineties and 1250s and rigid frame trucks, just hogging material and, 390s digging through rock to lay storm drain and water line. And it's just, it's like a, I, the analogy I always use is like someone stepped on an ant farm and there's just machines and dirt flying everywhere in that place. It's, it's pretty unprecedented. You know, I mean, even for us, you know, in, in the state of Hawaii, you know, like we're struggling to get, you know, a total of, you know, 2,500 homes, you know, a year. And, and like, that's, that'd be amazing if we could get in the entire state. Like we're yeah. doing projects that have 5,000 homes on it. You know what I mean? They're I just know. like, and, and they're planning on being, you know, built out in three mm. years. It's just, yeah. it's, it's so amazing. The opportunity that's out there. And uh, 
And I mean, you got folks that have been in this business, like you said, for 40, 50 years. I mean, we've got a lot of really strong craftspeople that have been in this in this industry for a long time in the California marketplace that um, that they know what they're doing. You know, we we definitely learn a lot from our California team just as far as productions. And and, um, you know, we we learn a lot from the, those folks because they've been doing it for so long. It's a different world out there. Yeah, it's, I, I, it's super fascinating. What, um, why, why do people stick around with you guys so long? You know, we've touched on it a little bit, but what, what do you really think it is? Yeah. I like to think that it's, you know, it's the people, it's our culture that we have. I mean, that's, you know, I hate to go back to it, but I like to think that if you find a place that you feel respected and people want to be, you know, want to be with you, you feel appreciated. You feel like you're able to be challenged on a daily basis that, you know, why would you want to leave? You know, I, and, and that's kind of the, the, culture that we're trying to create is is one where we are we look out for each other and and you feel a part of a, a team that's greater than yourself but but I think I like to think that's why you know we we try to pair people competitively we try to do all all the other pieces of, of having a you know having a business that shows their people that they are appreciated but at the end of the day I think it's you know who who you work with do you work for somebody that you feel like cares about you and your growth. And, um, and you know, if, if there's no good reason to leave, why leave? And I think that's your best defense. There's a lot, I hear all the time, like these people just leave for a dollar raise or whatever it is. That's your best defense against that uh, is just make it a place that people don't want to leave, even if they are offered a dollar more. And even better yet, make it a place that when they're offered a dollar more, it's not, uh, even a thought in their mind that they're going to take it, but they're also comfortable enough to say, "Hey, this is you know what we were, was I was just offered, and I I, I you know maybe want to talk about this too." Absolutely. I think that's a that's like the next level of culture. But I think like that's your defense is just make it a great place to be, and people are not going to be leaving left and right for fifty cents a dollar more. I think too having consistent work is important, right? And so Super. you know, yeah, you could maybe get a couple bucks more. And you're going to have a, you know, an eight month job, but then what's coming after that eight month job, you know, are you going to have to go work somewhere else because, you know, they don't have the work available. So for us, a big piece of retaining talent is we've got to keep a nice pipeline, a nice backlog of work ahead of everyone so that they know that there's opportunity, you know, and this isn't a, you know, this isn't one year, this is going to be 40 years of work. And so that's on us, right? That's on us to make sure that we're able to keep the hopper full. But, uh, but I think that's a piece. That's a, and I feel like uh, office people, salaried people lose sight of that sometimes because they're salary. And so they just get money uh, every week or every two weeks consistently, you know, 52 weeks of the year. They don't have to worry about that. And yet uh, that's a real cause of anxiety out in the field. Uh, these, you know, if they're not working, they're not getting paid. And yet their, their, their bank and whoever holds their mortgage doesn't say, oh yeah, no, it rained this, this, this month. No worries. You don't have to, you can only pay 75% of your mortgage or like they have to feed their kids. Their, their kids are still eating the same amount of food, whether they're, they're working or not. And just that, I mean, I'd say that consistency is almost more important than what people are paid at the end of the day. I, Pay is very important, but if you can give give them consistency, especially in this world where consistency is not the norm, you're going to be way ahead of the game, and people are going to be very, very appreciative of that. And when times are tough, that's you know a lot of times when we're bidding jobs, you know, in in difficult marketplace. Like, look, we're going to bid this job to break even because at the end of the day, mm-hmm. if we're keeping pe- our people working, then there's going to be opportunities that come come up, right? And and you've got to always be kind of mindful of your resources because this is a people business. This is a talent business. And so, you know, there's nothing worse than, than losing a talented operator, you know, craftsperson when you're in a spot because you just can't give them work. And like, if somebody says, Hey, look, I got to feed my family. Like how I'm not going to say, yeah, we'll stay home. You know what I mean? It's like, go feed your family. You know what I mean? Hopefully, if things work out in the future, like there's an opportunity to you to come back, but I, you know, I can't sit in my seat and say, you know, no, you should keep waiting. You know, it just, it's not right. It's not right to them. Yeah, I completely agree. 
Well, I've enjoyed this. Oh, Aaron, I enjoyed it. Next one, I guess we're going to have to have the next one in Maui then. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Count me in. I'll be there. I, I really, I really, I, I'm hoping before the end of the year, uh, restrictions considered, because who knows where things are going to go. But I would love to get out to Maui because I'd, I'd love to see you. And I'd, of course, love to see chemo. I've been wanting to visit chemo for two years now. Um, so hopefully I can get out there. Okay. We'll, uh, we'll have a place ready for you, man. And maybe, maybe we can have you to Nashville one of these days. You know what? I've never been to Nashville and, um, and I have a, one of our, I don't know if you know, Phillips and Jordan construction at all, but Teddy, we do, we do, we do work with them. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, so Teddy Phillips yeah. is a, is a friend of mine. He's a great guy. Yeah. And, um, and so I just have always wanted to get out and, and see that that part of the country. Actually, my my wife's father lives in just outside of Knoxville, so we've got to we got to get a family trip over there anyway to go see him. So that would be a lot of fun. Get on out here, yeah. We are we actually have some guys with Phillips and Jordan today uh, down in Florida. Oh, awesome, awesome. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. No, they're they're a great family. I mean, I don't. I think they're like 130. I mean, they're they've been in business for a really long mm-hmm. time. And, uh, yeah. you know, they do some really cool stuff. I mean, they did the cleanup from, you know, September 11th, you know, they do a lot of these, you know, yeah. big, big cleanup jobs. Um, you know, they do a lot of firework, tornado work, and then their civil work is, is pretty awesome too. So it's, they're, they're a great outfit. I forgot about, yeah, you guys do a lot of firework now too. Yeah. Yeah. We did the, unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately, yeah, unfortunately it seems like it's, uh, you know, becoming, <laughs> more and more yeah, I mean, yeah so we we did the uh the campfire cleanup we were partners with um with Sukit and um yeah. pacific states at uh, paradise and then we're did the uh the, the cleanup in sonoma and napa this past year with tykert and odin um so so we've been uh yeah unfortunately we've been doing a fair amount of that actually I'll, um, I'll email you. We did like a little video on it. If you want to take a look at it, it was pretty, pretty cool on the campfire work. You might, uh, yeah. you know, it, it's pretty, pretty interesting when you actually get a boots on the ground feel for, for what actually takes place. You know, it's a uh, pretty moving. Yeah. No, I'd, I would love to see that. We did some video work for Anvil in paradise. Oh, okay. Absolutely. When they were there. And that was, yeah, all oh, that's something, uh, seeing that's never, I'm never going to forget that. Oh, man. Yeah. We, we were, I flew in the, the day that we got the contract, you know, we were like trying to find offices or trying to do everything, but we went up and just toured the, the city before anything had happened. And it was, you know, it's just hard to imagine you're sitting there looking like this was somebody's home, you know? And then yeah. you just look at the magnitude of the amount of homes that went down and you're just like, gosh, the amount of, the amount of pain, you know, through something like yeah. this is just immeasurable, you know, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully it slows down. Yeah. We'll see what this fire season holds. But, uh, yeah, likewise, I, I mean, or like I said, I, I really, really appreciate you taking some time yeah. to, to hang out with us. Yeah, likewise, man. Well, well, you, uh, definitely take care. Thank you for having me. Cool. Thanks, Chad. Dirt Talk is hosted by Aaron Witt and produced by me, Alex Horton. To connect with other people who listen to this show, use and search for the hashtag BetterDirtWorld and join in on the conversation. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, reach out to dirttalk at buildwit.com. Stay dirty. Stay dirty.